Please join me in prayer. We are grateful to you, our Heavenly Father, that you have spoken, that this word is from you. You have breathed it out. It's a word to bring us to conviction, to encourage us, to fill us with hope and reassurance. And we pray that it would have that ministry to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I was with one of our sons. We were in the Kruger National Park in a safari vehicle with a guide. We turned around a corner and we were confronted by a herd of elephants. One of the elephants, a five-ton African bull elephant, took a particular interest in us. He started flapping his ears, throwing dust in the air with his trunk and stomping on the ground and he came for us. Our guide reassured us and told us that they were mostly bluffing. All I heard was mostly. I didn't hear always bluffing, just mostly. Uh, as it turned out, he was mostly bluffing, and he was bluffing. And I thought, hey, what a different experience that is. A boy who grew up in Sydney went to Taronga Zoo. In those days, you could have a ride on the elephants for, for a few pence. Uh, you could go to the circus and see the elephants there, but they were always objects of pity. How different it was to be in the wild, to be confronted by a bull elephant, and he was charging us. What a different experience that was. What a different experience there is to have an authentic, wild, real elephant experience in Africa to having a skim milk counterfeit version, a weak version here in Sydney. And I put it to you that there is a Christianity which is a Christianity in the wild, the real thing. And there is Christianity which is skim milk, it's counterfeit. It's a pale imitation of the real thing. And the vast majority of people on planet Earth are living consistently with this tame, counterfeit version of Christianity. And the way it works is this. When you come to know Christ, you know that you can only be saved by trusting in Jesus and not in your own works. You can't do anything. And as you proceed in your Christian life, you start looking at your own performance and your own performance is patchy. And so your gaze shifts from trusting in Jesus wholeheartedly to now trusting in you so that you have, you're in, in and out of relationship with God on the basis of whether you've performed well today or performed badly. So you're a good and a bad Christian. You fall in and out of relationship. And I put it to you that this is the tame version of Christianity and it is not the real version. Now, a friend of ours works in New Guinea in a program called TEE, Theological Education by Extension. Uh, groups of five or six people throughout New Guinea studying the Bible together, and each group has a leader. And after 22 years of administering this course, she put out a questionnaire to the leaders of these groups. Listen to these questions. Ezekiel was a true believer. He was growing more and more in obeying God and confessing his sins... One day, though, he was lazy and fell asleep instead of doing his work. The next day, he repented of his laziness. Then he suddenly died. Do you think he went to heaven? Yes, 
100% of the leaders said yes. Ezekiel went to heaven. Listen to the next question. John was another true believer. He was growing more and more in obeying God and confessing his sins. One day, though, he was lazy and fell asleep instead of doing his work. Then he suddenly died in his sleep when a tree fell on his head. So when he died, he had not repented of his laziness. Do you think he went to heaven? And she was shocked to find that 95% of the leaders of these TE groups said no. John did not go to heaven because when he died, he had unconfessed sin in his life. So he's barred from heaven. My friends, it is a very flimsy ground of assurance to think that I've got to have a clean slate when I go. And this, of course, leads to prayers for the dead. It leads to purgatory because there is no understanding of Christianity in the wild. And Christianity in the wild can be summed up by one word. And the word is justification. Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith. You see, what is this justified? It is that God, when we come to Christ, sees us in Christ. He forgives all our sins on the basis of what Jesus has done, and then he takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus and he credits that to my account. So that when he sees you, he sees you as clothed, covered, sheltered under the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So he sees me as though I was Jesus. It's an incredible truth. Having been justified by faith, forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Christianity in the wild. So the person who comes up to you and perhaps whispers to you and says, look, I'm a Christian too, but I'm just not a very good one. You know that they don't understand what it means to be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a perfect one because you stand in a perfect saviour. Apart from your own performance, you are clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, God sets you right with himself. Now, this morning at the early service, we sang a hymn that said this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. You probably know the hymn, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So when you come to trust in Jesus, you are right with God yesterday, you are right with God today, you are right with God tomorrow. This is an unchanging declaration of God the judge who says you're in the right through trusting in my son, Jesus. We have been justified by faith in Jesus and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul shows that three things follow in authentic Christian living. If you have the Bibles there, it is on page 914 of the Church Bibles, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Please open them and follow because I'm going to work through the passage. Notice, because we are justified through trusting in Jesus, the first thing that follows in verse 1 is that God is at peace with us. He's not holding anything against us. You can accuse yourself. Your friends can accuse you, your neighbours can accuse you, but God doesn't accuse you. He is holding nothing against you. There is nothing to fear in Judgment Day. You've had the verdict of Judgment Day. Now you are in the right and God is at peace with us. Look at verse 2. 
Paul uses a military term. The man, the first man over the wall of the city, invading the city, he establishes a platform so that the other men can come over and land on the platform. And Paul says in verse 2 that God has established a landing platform. If we've been declared righteous, we stand on the platform of grace. It is an unconditional relationship of acceptance. We don't have any human relationships like that. There is always some condition to our human relationships. But with our relationship with God, it is, it is unconditional. We stand before God accepted on our best day and on our worst day. And it is unmerited. It is contrary to our deserving. It is grace. And then Paul goes on, notice in verse 2 and says, because we are justified, we rejoice, we literally boast in the hope of the glory of God. We are people with a certain future. Romans 8 tells us we have a sure expectation that when the new creation comes, we're going to be part of it. We're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We are going to receive new bodies. And that is going to be our experience. We are people of a sure future because we trust in Jesus. We've been forgiven. We've been declared righteous. And so Paul says, we boast in the glory of God. So there's verses 1 and 2. It's magnificent, isn't it? There's nothing to fear in judgment. If you're trusting in Jesus, God is at peace with you. You're in an unconditional, unmerited relationship with God. And you have hope of the glory of God. But look at verse 3. It's an enigma, isn't it? It's a riddle. Paul goes on and says, not only do we boast in hope, but we boast in suffering. How can you boast in suffering? How can you glory in suffering? Do we like pain? No. It's where suffering leads. Look at what he says, verse 3. Suffering leads to endurance. We keep going when it's not easy. And endurance leads to character a tested quality about our character. And character, verse 4, leads to a refreshing of hope. We rejoice in suffering because of its influence on our hope. That is, it freshens our hope up and it gets us ready for the hope of glory, which is coming in the future. I think one of the most terrible cities I've ever visited is the city of Lagos in Nigeria. For many reasons, it was a very taxing city. I had to give a preaching workshop there and I, my workshop was to start at nine o'clock in the morning and the, there was to be a funeral there at 7.30 that same morning. I got there early and went along to the funeral and the Christian brethren, Christian brothers and sisters were burying a Christian brother and I've never been in a meeting where there is so much reverberating hope, so much expectation, so much fullness of the reality of heaven that is to come. And of course, it's not hard, is it? Look outside in Lagos and you're surrounded by taxing environment. Heaven's got to be better than this. Now, we don't get that, do we? Look outside here. It's not too bad, is it? And we don't have that expectation that heaven is going to really be a release from this taxing environment here. But this is precisely what Paul says. When you suffer, no matter how hard it is, physical, persecution, emotional suffering, whatever suffering you're experience takes well rejoice in it glory in it because it's getting you ready for heaven which is coming now friends do you see what Paul's saying he's saying the source of our hope is justification trusting in Jesus 
The refreshing of our hope is when we go through suffering. But thirdly, look at verses 5 to 11. The guarantee of our hope is God's love. That is why Good Friday is such a good day to remember that we see here the love of God and it is the love of God which assures us that our hope will be fulfilled. Look at what Paul says, verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope will not be disappointed. Hope doesn't cause us to blush. Why? Because of God's love poured into our lives by the Holy Spirit. He gives us a sense. The Spirit gives us a witness. The Spirit gives us a testimony that we are loved by God and that we are the children of God. And God's love is so real that he will not allow our hope to be smashed. Every time we come up here, we come on the M4, we come to the light horse interchange. And those of you who are old enough will remember that before the light horse interchange was there, there was Australia's Wonderland. Australia's Wonderland was a great theme park. Our kids loved it. We loved Australia's Wonderland as well. Can you imagine me saying to our youngest son, if you do your homework every day, then at the end of term, we'll go to Australia's Wonderland. Oh, beautiful dad, we'll go to Australia's Wonderland. And so he does his homework. And the last day of school term, he comes in, Dad, I've done my homework every day. Australia's Wonderland tomorrow. And I say, ha, I fooled you. We're not going to Australia's Wonderland. Now, let me out. I didn't do this, OK? It's all right. <laughs> I didn't do this. But you see, it'd be most unloving, wouldn't it? I sat by the deathbed of my father and I told him of the hope that we have of heaven in the future. Do you think when my father passed over that God was there saying, ha, I fooled you? There's nothing here at all. You see, if you truly love, you will not make a promise and see that promise smashed. The basis of all Christian hope is God's promise. The basis of Christian hope is God's promise and the guarantee of Christian hope is God's love. And Paul says here in verse 5 that God loves us so much that he's given us his spirit to remind us and testify deep within, you're loved and you are mine. Uh, in Deflora, uh, the florists had a motto that said, say it with flowers. But look at those next verses and you'll see that God said it with a cross. Because God, from verses 6 to 8, tells us that he truly loves us as well in an objective way, historic way, through the death of his son on the cross. Verse 8, God shows or demonstrates his love. Christ died for us. When? Look at verse 6. When we were weak, powerless. People say, well, well Christ died for me. I must be very important. You were weak. You were powerless. You were ungodly. Verse 8, you were a sinner. Verse 9, you were God's enemy. There was nothing attractive about you that attracted God to you. But in that case, God saw his son, Jesus Christ, die for you because of his great love for you. And Paul says, how rare this is. Look at verse 7. You'd rarely die for a righteous man, a man who always does the right thing. Though sometimes you die for a good man, a man who's likable and does the right thing. But God shows his love for us that when we were enemies, powerless, weak, ungodly, sinners, it is at that time that Christ died for us. What love? When I was at my worst, 
God gave his best. And so Paul says, hope will not be shamed because God's love has been demonstrated at the cross. Do you think that it's not going to be there when you're ready to go to eternity? Look at the cross. You are loved and greatly loved. And great love will ensure hope fulfilled. But there's more. Look at verses 9 to 11. Isn't this incredible? Paul goes out of his way to make sure that you're certain of our hope. Twice, he says in verses 9 to 11, much more. Look at verse 9. If God justifies the guilty by the blood of his son, uh, that's the greater thing. Well, how much more will he comparatively do the lesser thing and save us from his wrath? If God justifies you, the guilty, through the blood of his son Jesus, well, now surely he will save you from his wrath. Verse 10, if God reconciles enemies, now we are his friends, surely he will save us. It's rather like if your father says to you, when you're getting married, when you get married, I'll give you a harbourside mansion and a lawnmower to mow the lawn. And of course, he gives us the mower and you think, well, will I get the mansion? Well, I'm not sure. I've got the mower though. But if he gives us the mansion, will I get the mower? Well, I don't really care. But, but yes, yeah, sure, if he does the greater, then he'll surely do the lesser. Do you see what Paul's saying? Is that if God does the greater and justifies us through the blood of his son and he reconciles enemies, then now we are justified and now we are reconciled. Surely he will save us and bring us home. Paul wants you to be sure you are justified and so we have a sure and certain hope. Verse 2, we rejoice in hope. Verse 3, we rejoice in suffering. And verse 11, he concludes by saying, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Mark Twain said, there are two most significant days in your life. One, the day you were born, and two, the day you understood why. Do you know why you were born? Have you got that insight? Has that significant day been established? Here's the reality of Romans 5. God says you were born to serve and glorify me, to serve and glorify the God who declared you in the right at great cost to himself. You've been born to honour on earth the God who loves you. And Paul goes on here about hope because why hope? Because hope fuels that ongoing service. It is hope that keeps me serving the God who saved me. It is hope which is the fuel. And so keep on in hope because God has assured us of the fulfilment of hope by his great love. One of our children came home from school one day and he'd been studying history and the note said that they'd require parental permission uh, for all the boys at school uh, to go and see the Russell Crowe film Gladiator, who he gave permission. That weekend, the headmaster of the school went to see Gladiator and a note came home on Monday that said that no boy from the school would go in school uniform and see Gladiator. It was far too realistic, he said. So I went to see it. And I found it was totally unrealistic. I mean, if you remember Maximus, the gladiator, Russell Crowe, at various points in the movie, he's going to die. 
And at that point, he has a vision of his wife and son who've already died, and they've gone over to a beautiful garden. And that's where he's going to go at the moment of death. And I thought, how unrealistic is that? And yet the vast majority of our, our fellow Australians also make that giant presumption. In other words, that when I come to death, I'm going to go and play cricket with Bradman up there. And when I die, I'm just going to go and keep playing golf or keep playing sailing uh, or keep sailing up there. And what is the giant presumption, the hope we have because of Jesus? We can have that hope apart from Jesus. It's got nothing to do with him. God says, this hope is yours because of your trust in Jesus. No, I want the hope, thank you very much, I just don't want Jesus. It is a catastrophic and tragic presumption. But look at what God says here in these verses. Look at verse 1. We have peace with God, how? By being good? No. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him, Jesus, we have access to grace. Verse 8, Christ died for us. Verse 9, we are justified by his blood. Verse 10, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son. Therefore, verse 11, we rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it may well be that you don't yet know this Jesus. You haven't placed your faith in him. Well, today is a great day, isn't it? To find out the why. Why are you on this planet? Why did you have that first birthday? What are you doing here? And you'll find that. And you'll find hope. And you'll find love when you come and place your faith in Jesus. When I was a student at Moore College in the 1970s, we were reading a book, Evangelism in the Early Church, uh, by Michael Brown, I think his name was. And... Uh, some of us, he said in that book that some of the early Christians used to put signs up on their homes to evangelise those who were going past. And so in those days in Newtown, students would stream down to the university and so some put signs up on their homes, evangelistic signs. And someone went to our principal, D.B. Knox. Dr. Knox, there's a great blank wall looking down City Road, the side of a terrace building owned by Moore College. Can we put a big sign up there? And Broughton Knox agreed that we could put the sign up. He'd pay for the paint, but he would have the last word on what the sign said. And the sign was up for many years, and this is what it said. God has fixed the judgment day. Flee to Jesus. He will save you. Come to him. Flee to him. He will save you. You'll know peace with God you'll know an unconditional relationship. You'll know hope of the glory of God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ.